0: I will be reading from Psalms 95, 1 through 11, and I'm going to try my best not to sing it. Um, come, let us sing for joy to the world, for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud, aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This
1: is God's word. You may be seated. It is kind of hard to say that without wanting to sing it. <laughs> uh, inside of your bulletin you find uh, not only an order of worship, but an outline that you can use as we, we go through this uh, this message this morning. Uh, at the bottom, there are the questions for small group tonight as we discuss uh, Psalm ninety-five, John chapter four, tonight in our small groups. Let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. <coughs> Father, we are grateful that we are the sheep of your pasture. We are grateful that you command us to worship. And to recognize the excellencies and the the greatness of your being in in such a way, Father, that that we too are moved. And healing takes place in our hearts because of worshiping you in right ways. And so this morning, Father, as we, we think deeply about these words that we find in John and we find in Psalm 95, we ask for the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it. And this is what we pray with all of our heart. In the name of Jesus and all the church said. Let's begin with our memory verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. It's up on the screen if you've not memorized it yet. But it's the theme verse for our series on, on the walk of Jesus as disciples. And let's say it with our outdoor voices together. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Let's say it again. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It means as disciples of Jesus, it matters how you walk in terms of a pattern or a way of walking that that uh, e- exhibits and demonstrates a, a value system and a coarse system of, of of treasure that that changes the way that we respond, where our affections are put in life, But it's also a walk with whom. It's not just about the direction or the how of the walk, but it's also with whom. And last week we emphasized that at the the center of the prayer life of Jesus was the relationship with God and all that God was and is and ever will be to the hearts and the minds and the souls of his people. The same is true about worship, which we're going to look at this morning. At the center of worship is not a how, but a who. And worship was one of those areas in which Satan attacked Jesus. In fact, it was one of the first areas in which Jesus was attacked by Satan. You know the story of the beginning of Matthew, beginning of Mark. You have Jesus going out into the wilderness where John is baptized. He's baptized by John to uh, fulfill all righteousness. And being baptized publicly like that, he is aligning his life publicly with the will of God. Immediately we are told that the Spirit of God drives him out into the wilderness where he's there for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. And at the end of that period of time, Satan comes to him and in a series of, of three events or instances, he tempts Jesus to give up his, his, uh, his allegiance to God, to give up the cross. And at the end, he says, why don't you just do this? Take a look around you. Here are all of these kingdoms. I will give all of this to you if you will bow down and worship me. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, "No, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that." He says, "Away from me, Satan." And then he says, "For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him what?" Only God is the only one that we are to worship throughout his ministry, Jesus would address worship. He was he was also a participant in worship. He would show up in Jerusalem at all of the great festivals that were on the Jewish calendar. One time, uh, uh, in fact, twice, he became so indignant with what he saw happening at the temple that he overturned the tables of the money collectors and those that were selling the animals for the sacrifices, because commerce had taken over the place of worship and the place of prayer. In Mark chapter 7, he's teaching the people about worship and about faith and about how to live with God and to walk with God. And he talks about the danger and the reality, if we're not careful, of worshiping God in vain. Meaning that the worship that we participate in would have no bearing whatsoever on anything in creation. And then over in John chapter 4, a question about worship lies at the very center of one of the best known stories about Jesus. So keep your finger in Psalm 95 and then turn over to the fourth chapter of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John chapter 4. You know the story, Jesus headed back north with his disciples. He's heading from south Judea up into northern Galilee. Get to the area of Samaria. It's the middle of the day. There's a village called Sychar that's close by. And they stop at this place called Jacob's Well because there was water there. The disciples know that Jesus is tired. And they say, why don't you rest here for a moment? The fellas and and I, we will go into Sychar, we'll grab some food, and we will come back. And Jesus sits down. And as he's sitting there, a Samaritan woman shows up to draw water. And Jesus does this unthinkable thing. He says, would you give me a drink of water? And she is startled and taken aback. Not only because they are in sort of a private place with nobody around and a man speaking to a woman, but she's Samaritan and he's Jewish. And the history of the Jews and the Samaritans had not been a very good history together. And she gathers herself together and she goes, You're asking me for a drink? And the Christ says to her, If you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water, and you would never be thirsty again. And she's never heard anything like that. And she says, I think I'll take some of the water so I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. And he says, why don't you go call your husband? She averts her eyes. It gets a little uncomfortable around that well. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, correct. You have had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. You know, everybody has a a religious question. This woman has one. And they're away, and it didn't even have to happen in the field of religion. Everybody has a question that they, they use to, to avert and detour the conversation. A lot of years ago, I was in a ride-along with a deputy sheriff one morning, and we were out on these country roads, and he pulled over to this wide shoulder down at the bottom of a long hill. And he said, why don't we just sit here for a little bit, and I'll show you how the radar gun works. And I said, that's cool. I've never seen one. I've been on the wrong side of it a couple of times. But show me how it works. And so, you know, he buzzed a couple of people. They were speeding. He let them go. He said, would you like to try it? I said, I thought you would never ask. And so I get out of the car, and I've got the the radar gun, and I'm standing in front of this, this deputy sheriff's cruiser. He's staying in the car. And I'm just waiting for somebody to come over that hill so I can zap them with that gun. It was like a gunfight. You see, who was the fastest, right? Here comes this guy over the hill. Will he see us first and slow down, or will I get the draw on him? Waiting and waiting, waiting. Finally, you hear a car coming up, and you just tell it's speeding. And that car comes up over the top, and I won that. And I, I show it to the, the, the deputy sheriff. He flips on the lights. Points to the guy to pull over, the guy pulls over, and I'm still standing outside and I'm just waiting and listening. It's going to get good. And he walks over, he says, Hey, um, uh, you're in a hurry or you're on your way to work or something. And the guy goes, Hey, I wasn't speeding. And um, the officer said, the, sheriff, the deputy sheriff said, No, you were. You were. We could tell by the sound of your car and the sound of your brakes, and we also have you on the gun. We have you. you. You were speeding. Well, this guy is arguing up to that point, and then it gets uncomfortable. And he has this question. When's the last time you tuned that radar gun? <laughs> he got a ticket. He got a ticket. So we go back to the well, Jacob's well. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. Correct. You've had five, and you're living with a man right now. And everything gets uncomfortable around that well, and the woman has a religious question. You know the religious questions, right? Was the thief on the cross really saved? Are you telling me that God was both fully man, or Jesus was fully God and fully man? She has her religious question. She says, obviously, you're some kind of prophet to know something like this. We Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And before she can go on, Jesus says, yes. That's the right question. That's the right discussion. That's the subject. And a time is coming and is now here that it won't be about places, but about worshiping God in what? Spirit and say it. Truth. And then he says in verse 23, These are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Spirit and truth. We don't have time to talk about what all of that means. But when you think about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God exists to drive people into the heart of God. The truth of God's Word is what? To make us ignore God? No, the truth of God's Word is to drive us into the heart of God. And one of the great passages on the Bible in the Bible to talk about worship is the one that Cameron just read, Psalm 95. And it helps us to understand what worship is like when God is at the very center. First, a definition of what worship is. Psalm 95, verse 6, at the very center of this psalm is the word worship. And the actions of worship are all over the first half of this psalm. In verse 1, it's singing. In verse 2, it's about extolling or praising with energy and enthusiasm with music and song the attributes of God. In verse 6, it's about bowing down. In that same verse, it talks about kneeling before God. That old Anglo-Saxon word, "worship," from which we use the English word worship, means to attribute or to ascribe worth. And not just Verbally and vocally, but with the actions of the body. We say He is Lord, but we kneel before Him, we bow before Him. There's a definition that I'd I'd like for you to get. And the definition is this, worship is the intentional turning of the mind to God. You're intentionally turning your mind to God. And the contents of your mind, the inventory of all the attributes of God that you have in your mind... Come to bear on your thinking and you attribute supreme value and glory that only God deserves in a manner that makes a difference in the life of a human. It's about thinking about God, turning your mind intentionally towards God and everything that God is described in, in the Word of God and and, and getting a hold of that as that gets a hold of you and attributing and saying and ascribing to God all of that glory, all of those attributes. All of those excellent things that only God deserves, but to do it in such a way that it changes the way you live. There's an example, I think, that kind of makes that evident. Th- think about uh, a fellow who's cleaning out his attic one day. He runs across an old family Bible. it has been in the family for years and years. In fact, he forgot that he even had it. And he decides that he's going to show it to some relatives. The relatives go, you know, it looks like an old thing. There's this show on television called the Antique Roadshow. Why don't you take it there? So he does. He shows up in the place where they are. It's his turn. He goes up to talk to the expert. Then he says, "Um, what is it that you have in your hand? He goes, it's this old family Bible. He says, well, describe it to me. He says, well, it's, it's, it's really big, and it's really heavy, and it's really old, and it was printed by someone with the name Guten, something or other. And the expert's eyes get really kind of big. He goes, you mean Gutenberg? Are you telling me that you have a Gutenberg Bible in your hands? And he says, yes, I, I, I think so, but it's probably not worth very much because some fellow by the name of Martin Luther scribbled all over it in German. I'm sorry I even brought it to you. And the expert says, what you have in your hands means that you will never, ever have a financial worry ever again in your life. The moral of that example is that this fellow was not living in accordance with what he had in his hands. Can you imagine that there are people who come to a place like this, as Derek said, all over the world. And and they can believe in God who created the heavens and the earth and not be thunderstruck. At the thought of that. Last week we were looking at the model prayer. Jesus gives his disciples a way for them to pray. He says, When you pray, say, Hallowed be your name, God. In other words, you're asking God to be God to you, to have the highest name above all names, to be God, to be hallowed. And then after that, he says, Pray, give us this day our daily bread. And that's the recognition of who God is and what He has done and can do. Now imagine you're sitting at the breakfast table and you've been you know, eating breakfast and you look over and your little six or seven year old son is stuffing Cheerios into his pocket. And then you go upstairs and you find that he's been hoarding you know, fruit cups and snack packs under his bed you're going to get worried about that kid. All that anxiety, all of that fear, why? Because he's not living in the reality of who you are as a loving and a kind and a providing parent. That's what the psalmist does here. He's taken an inventory of the greatness of God in verse 3 and in verse 7. There are two prepositions. He says this, and all of this great stuff about worship, for God is our God. And then he does it again, and he's talking about the greatness of God, for he is a great God. He's coming into God's presence, and he's taking notes. He's taking notes. He's not only Lord, but he's the rock of our salvation, which means can't move that rock, can't move our salvation. He's a great God. He's the great king over all gods. You know what else He is? He's a creator. The depths and the mountains and uh, the, the sea and the dry land, they all belong to Him because He made them. He's our God. Not aloof, but He's our God. He's our Maker. He's our caring shepherd. And you know what's happening? He's being overcome by beauty. He's being overcome by beauty. The beauty of God. If you allow it, spirit and truth will ravish you with the beauty of God. C.S. Lewis was writing about the Psalms one time. It's one of his lesser known books, a really good one. But there was a statement that he made about worship as it's found in the Psalms. And he says... He says that the experience of beauty is not completed until it's expressed. The experience of beauty is not complete until you express it. Until you find somebody and you say, you know what, I saw just this morning the Mona Lisa. Took my breath away. Last week, I get a text message from, from Ben Bailey, our song leader. He heard a beautiful piece of music this week and he shared it with me with this note attached to the video, and it said, I love it when people play with feeling. If you allow it, the life of spirit and truth will ravish you with the greatness of God to the point that you will burst forth in worship. Worship should never be something that we do without thinking about how wonderful and how beautiful God is which really leads us to the effect. You know, the difference between a humdrum life as a disciple of Jesus and a vivacious life is holy delight in God. Worship, when it's done that way, changes your life patterns. Changes your life patterns. Think back to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It's strange that she would go during the hottest part of the day to draw water then, the morning or, or the evening. The reason is probably because she's a persona non grata in that town, five failed marriages. Now she's living with some, some guy. You ask the question what had she put the ultimate value on in her life that in the end disappointed her? I mean, she, was she taking her cues from the culture around her that said you had to be married? To have worth. Or a mother of children. To have esteem in everybody's eyes. What was it that in the end disappointed her? And every time she picked up that water jar, it must have been something really heavy. Because it represented not just water, but the whole reason why she was there in the middle of the day. That water jar emotionally probably felt like an anvil. That lonely walk, the heat of the day, daily reminder of the kind of thirst that's in her soul that's never going to be quenched. That living water, no wonder, right? That living water sounds pretty good to her. And now she's standing in front of God incarnate having a conversation in the middle of the day. Something she didn't expect. And she says something startling. She said, I know that when the Messiah comes, He will explain everything. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. And she leaves that water jug right there and everything it represented, right there beside her in that well. And she goes back to that town that didn't really want to have much to do with her. And she says, I know that when, the you know, that this Messiah is coming, I think I found him. There's something so beautiful that happens inside her that she is compelled to leave that water jar and to go tell the very people who wouldn't even walk the path to Jacob's well to draw water with her. But there's something in the way that she says it. There's some weight to the way that she says it. And they come. And they hear. And you know what happens? It's such a a beautiful moment to stand in the presence of God incarnate that they beg him to stay. He's so beautiful. The Messiah. That they never want him to leave. And in the end, they speak to the woman. And they say, you told us and you were right. But now we believe because we've been in his presence. And Sychar is different. Paul knew what that meant. When he was in Corinth, he saw what had happened to those folk. The way that that God changed them, his grace and his forgiveness and his beauty changed them. And they would worship. And they would come together. And in the second letter of the fourth chapter, about three quarters of the way the chap- through that chapter, he says, So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. You know, change happens in humans when worship is transferred to God. We talk about this a lot, that the human heart was made to worship something. That's why the Bible always assumes worship. It never commands worship. The command is worship God and God alone. The worship of anything other than God devastates and it enslaves whatever it might be. The job, the family, the spouse, the money, the physical beauty, winning, whatever it is, All of those things will disappoint and diminish. But when God becomes the center of our worship, there's a healing that begins to take place in the human life. And you know, one of the things that we're doing this morning is we're reminding each other and ourselves that God is beautiful. And the very presence of you in this auditorium is is, is evidence that there's something in this world that is so great that you would give of your means and of your time and of your affections. And every time you come to worship, it's like coming to a jigsaw puzzle, right? If you look at one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, you go, I don't have a clue what I'm making. But when you begin to frame it out and you begin to put it together, the, all of those individual pieces that look so different from each other, when they come together, you begin to see the complete picture. So what happens when we come to church, in a manner of speaking, we're a jigsaw puzzle. When we come together, we see the beautiful things that the beautiful God has done in each of our individual lives. There are things that He's done in my life that He's never done in yours just yet, or at least that you noticed it. And the same with you in my life. But when we come together and we remember what happened to this brother and to that sister and how God was there, how they've changed, how there's, there's, there's a transformation that's taken place in the way that they deal with adversity in life. The joy that has replaced the snarkiness. We begin to see, when we look out upon this audience, a greater and more complete picture of the face of God. But one other thing happens, and it's this. That worship extends God back into the world. The psalm concludes on a hard note. Exodus 17, Israel's grumbling against God because of the lack of the water in the desert. And it's such a horrible scene. It doesn't hang well. And after seeing all that God had done in the Exodus, what they're wondering is whether or not the Lord, verse 7, is among us or not. God was not being joyfully relocated in his creation through a people who had seen the reality of his love and his grace and his faithfulness and his perseverance. Worship, quite frankly, answers the question, is God in this place? And even the way that you worship bears witness to that. There's this text in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is saying this is what happens when you get the real center of worship in the center and you worship spirit and truth. Is that in the way that you express that life transforming beauty of God in the way that you worship? He says in verse 25 that the unbeliever will fall down and worship God exclaiming that God, say it with me, God is really among you. You know you know what I am? Uh, I'm a private singer. I learned a long time ago, and no one had to tell me this. I heard myself sing one time, and I said, I can't tell the difference between that and the mating call of a stomach pump. <laughs> I'm a private singer. I sing in the shower once Ellen has left. And I sing a lot in the truck. Man, there are moments when I'm Frank Sinatra... There are moments when I'm Patsy Klein, There are moments when I'm Rod Stewart. This place right here, this auditorium, these walls, it's the only public place I sing. And I sing because the creator of the universe calls me son and he hears me with the ears of a father. And he's changed my life. I'm not much of a scholar in anything, but in this room right now, I am the number one scholar in one area. And that's what God has done in Mark Absher's life. And so I sing. And usually we come to this point, and it's an invitation. It's an invitation for someone who has a a need for prayer or a need to to be brought into the family of God through confession and repentance and baptism. This morning, we're going to offer all of that but the invitation is for all of us this morning and especially of those of us sitting here in this room. This invitation song, to saying, I keep falling in love with him. It's an invitation for you just for a moment in thinking about the beauty and the greatness of God in spirit and in truth, driving you to the center of God and God into the center of you to sing in a way that converts the people around you. Let's stand and sing. I
0: keep in love with him, over and, over and over and over and over again. I keep falling in love with him, over and over and over and over again. He gets sweeter and sweeter as the day.